Uh, my guest may just be the most multi-layered individual we have ever had on the podcast. Uh, he may have played uh, many characters during his travels in professional wrestling, but I don't believe he ever strayed very far from who he really was in or out of the ring. Now, people really didn't discover that until he became who most remember him as, and of course, know him as today, Raven, also known as Scott Levy. Scott, thank you so much for coming on Primetime. How are you? Oh, no problem, man. Uh, it's a pleasure. Okay, Scott. So before we went on the air, you said uh, you didn't think we'd ever met. And uh, I'm going to take you back because I, I think you're going to remember this. I hope you do. Um, before I went to work with the WWF uh, in 1988, I worked for uh, Major League Baseball Productions in New York. And I did this show. I was a producer trying to get a, you know, I, I did a lot of talent stuff when I could. I wrote and did all the everything. So I, I got to work on this show called Light Moments in Sports with Joe Namath. And I was a producer on the show, but they wanted to be able to go out and do these different segments with sports and this kind of thing. It was a blooper show. It was like one of the first ones that was uh, ever syndicated out there. So one of the stories we did, they wanted to do professional wrestling. And we hooked up with Larry Sharp and I went out there and I did a story, uh, you know, for the show. And, um, it was, it was a lot of fun. It, we, we didn't go, you know, uh, the whole approach was, you know, have respect for it, but have a good time with it. And I was kind of the idiot reporter who they destroy. And I, <laughs> I, I know for a fa- I mean, what I remember Scotty, the body, and I think you were at peace with me. Do you remember that? Vaguely there was, it was at the airport hangar where you had, yes. to pull- yeah, yeah. No, I vaguely remember that. Yeah, it was, I think it was, they selected, it was uh, Larry, we said, you know, get us a couple of guys who are, you know, your top guys who would like to be in this piece. And I think you did it. And I can't, I wish I could remember the other guy, but I got to thinking about this, you know, doing my research uh, for the, for the show. And I'm like, I, I think that was Scotty. I think yeah, that. He, yeah. That, that, well, that I do the, vaguely remember that. So anyway, so in a, in a, in an indirect way, you, you kind of played a role in me getting to the WWF because uh, apparently uh, one of Vince's people saw it because it was airing in New York. And uh, I had, knew a guy that had worked at major league baseball who had gone to work for Vince. He said, I know that guy. So it, it, it was just all connected. Wow. I'm saying, like, isn't that amazing though? When I yeah, think back, crazy. yeah, all these connections, but I guess that was kind of the beginning. I don't know. Uh, you were, in your early twenties, I think at the time. Yeah. I just graduated college and, uh, I was still in the Marine Corps reserve. Um, so, uh, let's see, 87, I was 23. Yeah. So that uh, might've been 22 cause I probably hadn't turned 23 yet. Wow. That's incredible. I'm telling you like, uh, just how, what a connection. And I, I yeah, no, that's crazy. It hit me this morning. And it's (laughs) funny when you, when you said that we might've met at the monster factory, that's the only thing. I was like, didn't I do a thing where somebody interviewed me or something that I never saw? I was like, yeah. So, yeah, that's, yeah, totally. I, wow. Yeah, I was crazy. that idiot. I was that guy who got bounced yeah. around the ring. And thank God, I mean, uh, you guys could have really stretched me. And, but Larry was great and uh, you guys were great. And it really, that's, that, honestly, that's what got me to the no WWE. Yeah, that piece. I, we, How old were you in the WWF for? I was there from 88 to 93. So, uh, you know, just, well, you were starting, uh, you probably were just coming in then as I was leaving. So yeah, probably. Yeah. Johnny Polo came in probably right. as you were leaving. Yeah. But before we get to all that, um, I, I really love hearing about your path and, you know, you look at, you have a, you have a degree in uh, criminal justice, right? From Delaware. Yeah. Is that from the university of Delaware. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, how did that go from, I mean, you wanted to get into uh, law enforcement. I don't know what your, what was the plan? Well, I was going to go on the FBI or the CIA. Wow. Like that. Something interesting. You know, I thought about the DEA, but then I was like, eh, I do drugs. So that probably wouldn't be a good fit. <laughs> you could, well, you could be maybe undercover, right? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> he won't come out, thought, but that's, I wanted something exciting. I wanted an exciting life. And, um, you know, and I knew that going to law school wasn't for me because I wasn't one for studying. Yeah. So, you know, my too much ADD. So, yeah, so it was, and then I just, and I'd always wanted to be a pro wrestler as a kid, and I just never thought it was a doable thing. 
Because, you know, I was a skinny little Jewish kid. I was 100 and graduated high school after two years of lifting. I only weighed 160. Oh, you wow. know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, Jericho graduated high school at 185. So, yeah, so he, yeah. So he was a monster compared to you. Right? Com- compared to me, yeah. And, and, <laughs> and you know, and, and we're like the same size. Well, I mean, I'm a little bit bigger than him. But, I mean, yeah. well, maybe maybe 20 pounds heavier, but, yeah. you know, an inch taller. But, yeah, but it's, you know, but that's just the, the example. I mean, probably the only guy who weighed less than me graduating high school was Mysterio, you know. Oh, Everybody yeah. weighed more than I did. And that was after two years of lifting. I just had terrible genetics, you know, that I that I overcame my genetics with years of steroid abuse, but you know, <laughs> which, which I don't recommend. But, no. you know, and thank God guys today don't have to be, you know, huge to be in the business. But, um. You know- but before you get to that, before you actually got into wrestling, I, 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 did you ever take any steps to go? Uh, you would have been great in the CIA. I mean, did did I? You never I, had a discussion with no, them or I, something. I figured, I figured it of like in eleventh grade, in eleventh grade, in my junior year of college, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think it was my junior year that I wanted to go into pro wrestling. Really? And uh, like, I just decided I was big enough, you know, that it wasn't going to be a pipe dream that I could do it, and. Uh, and so I just, I never even, you know, looked forward, looked at, I didn't, I didn't have a backup plan. I was too stupid to have a backup plan. I mean, I, I got my degree. That was my backup plan, you right. know, but, uh, no, I, I just decided I was going to be a pro wrestler. So. Well, and you said you were in the reserves too. How much did, uh, did that involve? And did you think about maybe life in the military? No, I, that's why I wanted to, re- that's, I wanted to go to my two best friends in high school, went in the Marines yeah. and, uh. And they went active duty, but I, I, I wanted to see how tough I was. And, uh, and I, you know, I also am patriotic, so I wanted to serve my country, but I didn't want to serve it full time. That, that, that was not for me because, <laughs> you know, so, uh, so I went to boot camp and infantry school. And then I, you go into, then I went into the reserves, which is one weekend a month and two weekends every summer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did that for five years, um, you know, after. Uh, so I basically took a semester off of college, went to boot camp. Went, and then went back to college and then uh, and just did my uh, one weekend a month and two weeks every summer until my until my term of enlistment ended. Did it pay for your school? No, that you would you have to do active duty from to pay for your school. Oh, really? Oh, well, yeah. And I was like, nah, that's all right. It'll need to pay. <laughs> all right. So I, I can say thank you for serving. Right. Yeah, I still serve. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. No, I, it's still considered, you know, like uh, I was actually I didn't even realize because you know, I, I mean, like when people like I'm actually considered a veteran, even though I, to me, a veteran's a guy who fought in a war. Yeah. So I don't look at myself as a veteran, but I'm actually a veteran in the sense that uh, um, that I that I have like if I if I wanted to buy a new house, I can go through the veterans, uh, the VA. But I, yeah. I had no idea about that. I had no idea about any of that until somebody pointed it out to me uh, like a couple of years ago. And I looked I looked into it. But I, I always just thought that, you know, reserves, you didn't get the, um, you know, the same. um a lot of the benefits, but apparently you, you do get a lot of the same ones. Really? I mean, like yeah. uh, uh, like healthcare and that kind of no, thing. No, no, that's that's what I'm saying. Yeah, like you don't no. get all that, right. but you still get the uh, you still get the house thing. I think um, you have to have done like X amount of uh, you know f- fulfill six years, get honorably discharged, you know, and whatever. I forget. There's a couple criteria. Yeah, but I mean, you did what a lot of people, a lot of young people never do and and they because they don't have that there's an option they can do that if they want but most don't and you could have been called up they could yeah, have I mean, it could have i mean yeah. but there was no wars it, you know I, I went in in 84 february 10 feb 84 yeah. and there there were no wars on the horizon so i mean you know so i wasn't too worried about it but yeah. i mean it, it's not like now where you know you know over the last 10 it's not like since 2001 it's you know basically all hands on deck but you know, and then, then before that with Desert Storm. But what, what year was that? That was like uh, I forget. Yeah, it was before that. Um, but, but yeah, but like in '84, there, there wasn't anything on the horizon. Yeah. Well, but you never know. I mean, yeah. <laughs> oh no, still, you do know. You, you never know. I mean, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, Scott, before we we really get into uh, how you got to uh, Larry Sharp's door, um, you know, you you talk about throughout your career, you you're this uh, dark uh, person uh, growing up. And, and that certainly fueled a lot of your creativeness, uh, a lot of, uh, of who you are. But I've never really heard, you know, the circumstances of that. And you talk as early as, as five, year old, five years old, you're like this lonely kid. Uh, could you give us a little background of, of, of your childhood and, and how that shaped who you are? 
yeah, we moved a lot, and my dad couldn't tell me he loved me, and oh. I never, um, never felt like I fit in, and you know, and my dad would make my dad was a funny guy, really funny, and he would tease me, and but it like like Don Rickles, so he'd be hilarious, mm. and so, but it, it, but I didn't realize it at the time, but it really screwed up my sense of self worth, you mm. know, because mm-hmm. you know if, if your dad's insulting you constantly. You know, I'm thinking I'm thinking it's not affecting me because, you know, even though he doesn't tell me he loves me, I know he does. And his jokes are so funny that it makes me laugh. But it just it destroys your psyche, you know, and and your sense of self-worth. And so, you know, it probably wasn't until I was in my 40s that I finally got my shit together, you know, and uh, seeing a psychologist and all that. But also, do you think that uh, because, uh, you know, I, I certainly know about issues with this one, you know, growing up and. You know, I, I think uh, it is environment. I think it is people around you. But also, I think we're wired in certain ways when we come out that, uh, you know, that's just the way you are. And it has when you I, I think when you have that combination that it really, uh, you know, can turn you into that like tortured soul or whatever. But in some ways, there are benefits to it because yeah, there, there many, are, are, many of these people are incredibly creative people. Yeah. Well, not only that, but but it, it makes you driven. To, to uh, yeah. you know, it's like the the guy. Um, one of the greatest interviews I ever read was this. Uh, the guy who owns Oracle, Larry Ellison, uh-huh. it's like a billion dollar company. Um, yeah. they, they, he had a rough childhood, and and he goes, um, and he goes, uh, what about now? How about your kids? He, no, he goes, um, he goes. That's what made me so good at business because I was striving to overcome. He goes, will your kids be uh, as good as you at business? He goes, no, but they're loved. Yeah, <laughs> and so it's like. You know, it's like, you know, and, and he says it in a wistful sort of manner because, you know, like he's happy with all he's produced. But, you know, if he would have been loved, then, you know, he never would have had the drive to create what he did. You know, yeah. and it's true. You, you don't. But it, it's and it's, the thing is, is because you don't know the difference, you can't even look back and go, well, I'd rather, you know, if I had a trade off, I would rather be loved because you don't know what it feels like. So you can't even say so you still pick the way you were brought up. Because it's all you know. Yeah. But and I also you know, think, too, and I think, and I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is that you go one way or the other. Like you say, you 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 are, uh, either you achieve, uh, you go down there, there's a fork, or you become a victim. And I, you know, and, and you don't stay this average kid or average person. You go one way or the other, because I know a yeah. lot of victims, too, that had came from the same circumstances. You make that choice. Or you do both. You um, You achieve. But then you, when you, once you've achieved, then all of a sudden, then it's empty because you're like, wait a minute, I was, because the whole time you're, you're striving to achieve, it's keeping the demons at bay because, you know, you're, you're fighting to get where you got. But once you get there, you're all like, well, I'm, now I'm here. Why aren't I satisfied? Yeah. I was and supposed then, to fix it, everything. Right. Because you think it will, but even though you know it won't, but you, even though you know by society standards that ah, happiness, money can't buy happiness, you do know that money makes makes it so much easier to live yeah yeah so so you don't really you kind of buy it but you kind of don't buy it but then when you realize once you've succeeded and gotten really successful then all of a sudden you look back and you go well why do i still feel crappy and that's when the drugs and alcohol you know take you down yeah yeah and i and i want to get uh more into that too but i i will talk more about that when we get into the raven character but um tell me how you ended up at the monster factory because it it I, I it changed my life, <laughs> but I have a feeling it changed your life a lot more. Yeah, um, I wanted to go to wrestling school. I wanted to go to Malenko school. I'd heard about, but right. uh, but I couldn't find anybody who knew where how to get a hold of him. And uh-huh. so the only schools I knew about were Larry Sharps because he had, he was in Sports Illustrated because uh, yeah. they did a profile on him because of Bam Bam, you know, flaming tattooed four hundred pounder, and uh, right. Right. and then the Ken Passarello's gym had one in like Massachusetts that I think was with uh, Tony Altamari or somebody. Right. And, and, and were you in Philly? Did you, were you in Philly? Yeah. No, yeah. no, I lived in, I lived in Florida. I grew up in Florida. I oh, was born okay. in Philly and lived there till I was nine. Uh, okay. And then so we started you're... moving a lot and then we, uh, we ended up in Florida. Uh-huh. And uh, so, yeah, so I, um, but I went to university of Delaware, so I was back up North, but then I went back to Florida after, you know, graduating, but, then it was just, you know, like it was just a matter of choosing out of those couple places. So I chose uh, Larry Sharps, and uh, and then uh, 
You know, but then the thing was, he was never there. He was always in Japan with Bigelow. So he really didn't train me much. I mean, oh, really? ba basically, Charlie Fulton, who was a, who was a, uh, you probably know him. Um, or no, maybe, yeah, you know, you weren't in WWE. Uh, no. I keep, never mind. You, is he, WWF, is he uh, 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 related to Bobby? No, no, no. He Not was, one of those um, Fultons? He was, no, no, <laughs> he was, um, he worked for WWF for years as an enhancement guy. And, oh, okay. uh, and had been in the business, you know, a journeyman for 20 years at that point, 30 years. And mm -hmm. really good worker, but just not a lot of charisma. And uh, so he trained me most of the time because Larry wasn't there. And um, and really, after about a month, Larry's like, well, it's nothing really I can teach you. He goes, you, you know, you pretty much know how to do everything. You know, yeah. you need to go out in the world and uh, now, you know, go in front of people. And right. uh, that's, what, that's what always amazes me that people take two years at wrestling school. I'm like, what are you possibly learning? You know, really? yeah, I mean, more moves. I mean, the, the moves you learn how to take back bumps in a couple days, learn how to take, you know, hit the ropes in a couple days, you know, or a week, you know, your headlock. I mean, you learn the basics and, and you know, it takes a month to learn the basics, but then you got to get in front of people. So I started sending my uh, tapes out to everywhere, you know, because back then there were like still like nine or ten territories. And then uh, finally got Memphis called after about uh nine months. Really? Was that like uh, a connection with Lawler then? No, I didn't know him. I just kept sending my tape. Yeah, but know? I mean, he was, he said like, yeah. uh, he contacted you and said, hey. Yeah, Lawler called me up and said, uh, oh. you start on uh, Monday. You know, a lot of people don't realize because you know, they, they know the king, they know Jerry in the ring, but they don't realize what an influence he was down there uh, with that territory oh, and, yeah, and how many bigger. guys were there, you know? He's bigger than Austin is in yeah. Memphis. He's bigger than Hogan. He's bigger. I mean, he's like El Santo, you know, <laughs> El Santo big, Ricky Dozan big in, in Memphis. So when you go down there, I mean, you, you you said you had the basic moves, but you're still, you must still be pretty damn green. Oh, I'm horribly green. I mean, <laughs> after the month of training, he said, yeah. you know, I, I still went to the school a couple of days a week, you know, just to, yeah. to practice new stuff and to learn new stuff, you know, but, uh, but you yeah, do that show with me. What's that? I said, and to do that show with me, of course, you had to be there yes. for those few months. Of that of I caught you had a good time. <laughs> so I had like I had like either seven to nine. I had seven matches or nine matches. I can't remember which. Uh, oh, while I was uh, in this nine month period. Yeah. Um, in this nine month period before uh, they called me to go to Memphis, and then uh, so yeah, so when I got there, they went. They expected me to go over like I knew what I was doing, and I had no idea. I didn't have. I didn't even have a finish because I didn't expect to go over. And uh, so they go, what's your finish? I go, uh, clothesline. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, which, which is lame as it is, it's not yeah. that lame. It's not as lame as it sounds now because yeah. it wasn't used by a million people a million times in a million matches. But yeah. it, still, it still was incredibly lame. And they go, we have somebody that does that. I go, off the second? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was the best I could come up with on short notice. Like, cause, you know, they just they go, they called me into the bathroom where they booked the finishes. Yeah. And they go, what's your finish? And I was like, what? Uh, yeah. You know, but, and then um, after, so the first, um, so they sent me out there with this job guy, uh, Keith Eric, um, and uh, told me to go four minutes. I went like a minute and a half and forgot everything <laughs> I ever learned. That's, that's all I got. <laughs> yeah, that's all I, I couldn't remember anything. And uh, so yeah. nervous. Yeah. And uh, so then uh, they go, well, we told you to go four. I'm like, oh, oh sorry. Uh, like, I just played it off. And then that night, they had me wrestle uh, ja Jimmy Jack Funk, Jesse Barr. Huh? And uh, we were supposed to go 15-minute uh, Broadway, a 15-minute draw. And uh, and so we're working, and uh, he, g he gives me the Iggy. Like, he squeezes my wrist, you know, so I can you – know, signifying to me that I need to reverse it. Yeah. I don't know what he's talking about. He squeezes <laughs> my wrist again. I'm like, why is he squeezing my wrist? <laughs> squeezes it a third time. I'm like – Maybe he wants me to reverse it. I reverse it. He's like, yeah, I get this now. Because you couldn't, the locker rooms were in separate sides. You couldn't talk before the match. I never even met the guy before, oh, you know. Really? And, you didn't you know, get I'm a out there terrified. What's oh. that? You, you, didn't, you had no chance. They didn't go over it at all, like the last, you know, couple of minutes before you No, go. no, no. I mean, they sent a tape recorder saying that this is the finish, you know, between the locker rooms. Yeah, the ref right, would okay. bring it back and forth. But that's all you got. And we were going Broadway, so we didn't have a finish. We just said, go Broadway, go 15-minute Broadway. <sighs> so uh, he made me look like a million bucks, so they thought I was talented. And then the next night, they had me team with uh, this guy, Ricky Nelson. Um, 
against these guys, the Zebra Warriors, who were like 5'4", with masks that had like uh, hair, like a mohawk sticking out, mohawk of hair sticking out the top of the mask. Yeah. And, uh, and they were horrendous, too. And so we went out there and <laughs> we stunk the joint. I mean, it was humiliating. I mean, we were so bad, it was humiliating. And they're like, oh, you suck. And so then they made me a job guy, too. <laughs> uh. Well, it was probably a very, you know, fortunate for you because you could actually learn what you were doing out there. But before we get, I mean, you mentioned they, they used to, I, I have never heard that before, that they would have a tape recorder and the guy say, this is what I want to do. And they would take the tape recorder over to the other locker room or what? I've no, never... the, if, if you're in separate locker rooms, the, yeah. the, basically the, the, the Booker, uh, you know, Lawler or Jarrett, depending on who it is, would yeah. give all the finishes. And so the ref would queue up your finish and say, all right, here's your finish. And then he goes, and then he played to the, go to the next guy. Here's your finish, and he play it, and it just went to everybody and played their finishes for him. And then so there's no mistake in it, so there's no translation mistake through the ref. Right. And then he takes the tape to the other locker room and he plays it for everybody else. Was that a Memphis thing? Or was that common in other territories? Um, I've I never heard of that before. I'm telling common. you, huh? I think it was pretty common. Uh, you know, on town. I mean, some some buildings, the, you know, locker room was connected. You know, but some they weren't. Yeah. Yeah. And so when they weren't, um, yeah, it's pretty standard, I would imagine. It, but I guess that's but, ingenious. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before using tape recorders, they probably the ref would just give you the finish. Yeah. Right, yeah. So right. I mean, that's all it is. But uh, right. so when did you start to get it? Like, and it was it in later, Memphis? Huh? Two weeks later. Oh wow! So you're. Yeah, I mean, I picked it up incredibly fast. Like after like a, after like a month, I was like. Uh, I was watching guys who'd been working for 10, 15 years that were just terrible. And I was like, why aren't, why aren't I getting a push? Yeah. You know, but, but this business is, it's re perceptions reality. And right. so the perception was that I sucked because I came in and I sucked. So, and they gave me a chance. So they're not going to, so I would have had to leave to come back to get a push, you know, yeah. which, which I did. But, um, but also me and Marty Gennetti became really close friends and we would hang out every day. Uh -huh. And every night, so I, you know, so I'm picking a brain, his brain, which, you know, was, you know, great learning experience. And, um, and now how uh, much experience that he had at that point? Cause he was pretty, oh, yeah, no, he, they'd already been to WWF and got fired oh. your first night in already. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but they were getting ready to go back. Cause then they went back and started their big run, uh, like right after, right after this, but listen okay. to this territory. There was, it was me. Well, I mean, not that I was anybody then, but. Uh, but me, uh, the, the Harris brothers, that was their first territory, Scott Steiner, his first territory, um, Jeff Jarrett, Billy Jarrett, Billy Joe Travis, um, the rock and roll express were there. The midnight rockers were there. Oh. Um, yeah, they were fresh off of AWA territory. So they right. were still, they were still super hot off of the, off of that. And, uh, and they were working the, the midnight, uh, the rock and roll express, uh, Lawler was there, um. Yokozuna was there. Uh, Big Samu was there. Um, they were a tag team. Um, who else was there? A couple others, but it was like, you know, it's like a territory like five to five, ten years later. I mean, you had like, a, if all of us were there at the same time again, that would have been like the hottest territory ever, you know? Yeah. And they all were in the WWF. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah so we're talking, this is like 88. So yeah, this is, yeah, these is guys are pretty established at that point. Um, yeah, so, this is like February of '88 to yeah. like to um, February, March, yeah. April, May. Yeah, probably like May. Yeah. And Something so like you're that. just you're just working all these different uh, territories, I guess, uh, as they say, honing your craft. Yeah, but, I mean, and from there, I basically started getting a push, and yeah. as soon as I left there, I got a push, and I've always had a spot on the card ever since. You know, other yeah. than uh, I guess other than really my WWF uh, run, yeah. second run. Where, yeah. you know, I mean, I did have, you know, I mean, if you look at it from the perspective of a fan, it was a pretty good spot with the hardcore stuff. Oh, yeah. But I mean, if you look at it from my perspective, you know, it, it wasn't that great a spot, you know, but yeah. whatever. I yeah. it's 2020. So, I mean, was the, uh, and this is probably an obvious question, but uh, did you really consider, was that, that first run with, uh, with WCW, like your break, you know, where you really felt like, okay, uh, uh, I'm kind of uh, moving my way up among the elite in professional. Yeah, life. yeah, I yeah. really did. I thought I was making it somewhere, yeah. and uh, and Dusty uh, had had told me he had big plans for me because I, I after I went left Tennessee, Memphis, I went to a Florida Championship Wrestling, 
Right. And then from there, I went to uh, Vancouver, Canada for a month. And I went to Portland for two years where I, where I actually learned how to work. That's where I really learned how to work because, you know, you work literally six nights a week. Wow. Um, maybe maybe three weeks a year, it's five nights. But then there's like three weeks a year where it's seven nights. So you're averaging six nights a week. Um, so that's 300 plus days a year, you know. Wow. And you're going 15 minutes every night. Yeah. Um, and that and it's and it's a territory with either young guys coming up or old or guys who are past their prime going down. So it's you know so you have a lot of talented workers there and and man that's where I learned how to work you know, and uh, and listen learn to listen to a crowd. Right. And uh, so how did that call come? How did they notice you with uh, you know was it through one of the guys you knew or Dusty got a tape or what what happened? Um, well, first they were interested in me when I was in Portland. And uh, yeah. Jim Ross called, and uh, but I didn't think I was ready yet, not realizing that you have to go on opportunity knocks because they may not yeah. be when they want you. You may, and you know, I thought I would, me getting better would improve my my chances, you know, of my positioning later. But yeah. they weren't interested later because they, Jim Ross also thought I blew him off, but I didn't. But that's uh -huh. a whole long story that I don't yeah. go into. But yeah. suffice to say is so. Then I went to Global um, Wrestling after I left Portland. And uh, which was on ESPN every day at four o'clock. So I still had. So now I'm starting to have some national exposure. And then from there, DDP got me a tryout, I think, at WCW. And because uh, I knew him from the gym um, in, in Atlanta, where I lived, where I moved to. And, yeah, I was uh, going to ask you about that because I, I, I thought there was a connection before WCW. And that's what it was just from uh, being in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. I moved to Atlanta when I left Portland because I. I you know, I didn't. I didn't think I was getting in WWE because the guy was landed a giant. You know what I mean? Everybody was two eighty yeah. or better, and you know I was barely two twenty. Yeah. So I was like, I'm not going there. But uh, so I got. I figured WCW. They're based in Atlanta. That's that's my best opportunity. So that's where I moved. And then and then I got the Global, um, which was in Texas, but they would just fly us in and out. And then um, and then DDP. I met him at the gym because uh, we all everybody trained at. Um, uh, it was uh, in, uh, Sting and Lex had a gym called the Main Event, and uh, and the only people that trained there basically were strippers and wrestlers. So yeah. it was like the greatest gym ever. <laughs> How did you get uh, any work done? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, but you got enough done. And <laughs> and, uh, and so anyway, so me and DDP became good friends, and he got me a tryout, and then um, they hired me, and uh, and Dusty had big plans for me, but yeah. then Watts came in, and Watts didn't like me, and uh, Watts gave me the kibosh. Although Watts claims years later, I talked to him, he goes, he goes, hey, if it wasn't for me, there wouldn't be a Raven. I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, if I wouldn't have fired you, you wouldn't have went off and became <laughs> Raven. I was like, oh, well, if you want to, this kind of not really your response. It's not like you're not really getting any credit for this because. But, you know, but what do you think it was with Watts? Was it because uh, I mean the old school? Uh, because I, I imagine right from the beginning, you had your own ideas about trying yeah. new things. Yeah, uh, what you... I, I was just, I was too young. I had too big a mouth and I was too young to have that big a mouth. Now, like years later, I mean, I still had as big a mouth, but, but you know, once you have a certain amount of, of seasoning and reputation, you can get away with it. You know, it's still not advantageous to your career because it never, you know, me talking I always had to prove that I was the smartest guy in the room, even when I wasn't. But I still had to try to prove I was, and uh, and that's the worst thing you can do. And yeah, yeah, I consistently did it time and again because of my because of my insecurities. Because it's really you never learned you never learned not to talk. No, I, I knew I just better. I couldn't stop it. It was like <laughs> I was so insecure that that I had a. It's like um. See, anybody who's an egomaniac is insecure. Because the only reason people brag is because they're insecure. And so I was extremely insecure. So I would have to brag and be the smartest guy in the room, even if it was detrimental and destructive to my career, because it is the only way I felt like I could, like, be recognized, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And then, like you it's, said, it's, the... it's like it's like it's like you're drowning and like and you know you're, and you know not to say something, you know not to bring it up. But it's like you're drowning and you have to yell it out. Save yourself, yeah. even though you know that's just going to make you drown even deeper. <laughs> yeah, you you have no control over yeah. that. Yeah, well, you do, well, but you don't. Yeah, but you think uh, you know, like some of the, and I'm sure you've met hundreds of them along the way, but some of the biggest celebrities in the world, the most insecure people you'd ever. Oh, yeah, and that's why they, that's why they're so successful because they're so driven because 
they're so insecure. Yep. They're trying to they're trying to fill this void and doing anything they can. I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Exactly. Uh, so you get to uh, you get to WCW, which is a big deal, uh, and uh, you know uh, they give you this this uh, Scotty Flamingo gimmick. Um, which probably couldn't have been too far off. I mean, a, a surfer yeah. dude from Florida, you could probably do that pretty well. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was still basically I was a chicken shit heel, which is what Scotty the Body was. So it didn't, it didn't phase me. I mean, it wasn't, yeah. you know, it was, it was more, it, it was fine. I mean, it, I didn't have a problem with it. But you were close to DDP, and, I, and I've talked with DDP, uh, you know, before about that whole he, heel um you know, his, his psychology about it. And like you mentioned, you said, you kind of triggered that because you said chicken shit heel. And he's like, that isn't really worth anything when it comes down to it. And at that point, is he in your ear? And, and, uh, cause I know he, he later on with the, uh, Raven character, he kind of helped you do that, but was you know, he, he pointed, uh, very influential? He pointed, he, he pointed out years later when I was trying to come up with the Raven character oh. that, that I couldn't, that being a chicken shit heel wasn't going to get me anywhere because nobody was buying it. I mean, no bookers were buying it. Yeah. And I don't, I don't agree with the sense of you're saying that he, if, that he says that they're not money drawing characters because they are, you yeah. know, but you, but unfortunately. But no, no, I'm saying my point is though, he's saying like there's so, there's so many, that's kind of like, that's what the, I guess, you know, the, the model yeah, or whatever you look at, that's what most, most heels, yeah. Yeah, the problem with most heels are they don't get frustrated it's like when I teach seminars, you know, it's like the beginning of the match is the shine. Then the heel gets the heat uh-huh. and then they come back and go home. Except I don't think it's, I don't think it's really the shine. I don't think it's about the baby face getting over. I think it's more about the heel getting frustrated. Mm-hmm. You know, so I teach it as the heel gets frustrated, then the heel cheats and then the heel gets heat. And then the baby face makes a comeback because, but you, ne- cause you never see the heel get frustrated in the beginning, but really why is he going to cheat unless he's frustrated? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So the whole beginning of the match is really more, yeah, it's about establishing a baby face, but it's really more about establishing how, how infuriated the heel is going to get, mm-hmm. you know? And so, um, and so being a chicken shit heel involves that to another whole nother level. And, and, and there may be, I don't know. I don't watch it now. I haven't watched it in years, yeah. but, but there really aren't a lot of chicken shit heels because everybody wants to be a tough guy. You know, everybody. I didn't want to be a tough guy because there's a million of them. You know, yeah. I, mean, I don't need that. I didn't need that to assuage my ego. You know, that wasn't one. Of, that wasn't part of what I was worried about. I, I'd been through that in college when I fought everybody that looked at me funny. Yeah. You know, so I'd already got that out of my system. But so I didn't. And plus, in this business, I wasn't. You know, no matter how tough I was, or thought I was, or could have, or might have been, which I'm, which I'm not. I mean, I'm not saying I'm that tough. But you know, no matter how tough I would have thought I was. Well, you have Steiners and Hakus. I mean, this is a, this is the toughest business in the, in the world, you know? So I, I never considered myself anywhere near any of these guys' level. So I was like, well, I don't need to be a chick. I don't need to be a tough guy. And besides being a tough guy makes it harder to get to get heat because I mean, not to get heat, but to get, to make your character interesting. It makes it tougher because it, the, 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 the more badass you are, the more people like you because you kick ass. Yeah. So, and, and that's why when I became Raven, I had to become a badass to overcome the albatross of Johnny Polo. So I yeah. had to be a badass, yeah. but, I, but I made it so I would, get, I would get heat by being a whiner, which is because nobody likes a whiner. Yeah. So <laughs> no I kidding. Was, so I was the toughest guy in ECW. You know, or one of the toughest guys in ECW, you know, and my character I'm talking about, my yeah. character was, you know, like he wouldn't, he, you know, if he was in a chokehold, he, he would pass out instead of tapping out, you know, but because he just, you know, he liked the pain. So, yeah. but I found a way. And if, when you do that, that's why the road warriors are always turned baby face. That's why I said vicious is always turned baby face mm-hmm. because the people like them. Right. So They're over. I found a way to be a tough guy and unlikable at the same time but yeah but go ahead go ahead no no i'm just saying so so you know and that's why chicken shit heel makes it so much easier to get heat because people hate people that are cunts basically you know but but getting into the but getting into the psychology the psychology of this and i imagine you must have started thinking earlier on before you before you really established raven that uh, the, uh, blurring the lines a little bit on this because 
like you said, it was, it was, it used to be very clear cut heel baby face, you know, but you brought in that whole psychological, emotional part of it that made people start thinking about this character and you could have as many people hating your guts as liking you in an arena, which was, it's a, a bizarre well, thought. You know what I mean? Well, it, it's actually one of the proudest things I ever did in my career wow. because when I went to ECW, Paulie had decided it, it, it was part of the way the business was at that point because uh -huh. there's so many smart fans and the and the way that the business was that guys were you know they were basically booing the baby faces, cheering the heels. You know, the audience was becoming a part of the show, and and I said, and Paulie thought there was you know a lot of, a lot of very smart people in the business thought that that tweeners was all was the was going to be the last refuge, but yeah. when I came in, I was like, no, I go. You have to be a have to have heels and baby faces because to set up a tempo on a match and to build storylines, you have to have somebody get heat and have to have yeah. somebody make a comeback yeah. and it build to, and to build the drama whether it's you know in movies, books, television, you know or whatever. And so I said I'm going to be a heel and everybody who sides with me is going to be a heel and everybody I fight is going to be a baby face. And so I literally forced the company out of tweenership and into baby faces and heels. Yeah. And it's one of the proudest things I did. And um, and when I got there, Dreamer was 85% booed, even though he was a baby face. Um, and uh, <laughs> and uh, so I had to literally turn him into a Superman and build, and make myself hated. Now, the, the part where you say that, that because of the psychological games, that there's yeah. going to be a portion of the audience that likes you. Yeah, there's always going to be 10% that you can't account for. I mean, yeah. that, that goes without saying. But I'm pretty proud of the fact that I kept it 90%, 90-10, you know, against Raven as opposed to 50-50 or, you know, whatever else I could have done, you know. Yeah, but I I, I think it was, uh, I, I think you had more people in, in however you want to describe it, but they couldn't help but like the guy because you were, you, you stood up against everything. Like you yeah, were just like except, this. Except, but if you think, if you really think back to the time period, yeah. I would always when when they would start to like me too much, I would do right. something more despicable, like I would take the Sandman's kid. You know, right? Okay, so, all right. We I would I really want to get into that because, but I want to kind of do it along here because I think, as you mentioned, like the albatross of Johnny Polo, and yeah. that and that WWE experience was what took you to another level once you got to Raven. So, uh, tell me about that experience arriving at the WWE. How the hell that came about? And what it was like. Oh, what it was like I was in Memphis and they and WWF was um was interested and so they called Jerry Jarrett and they told him they wanted to have me be um this polo playing manager. And I, there was really no you know, the Memphis was the only territory left basically and mm. I just left WCW before that, so I was like I really but didn't feel like what? option. <laughs> What's that? I mean I know you, you want to go to the WWE. I mean who Yeah, who, I don't want to be a manager. But at though. the same time You've always been kind of anti-establishment or whatever. You, but but why are you thinking like uh, uh, Johnny Polo? I'm going to be some, you know, Greenwich punk. I mean, yeah, I, I, it didn't it didn't fit me. But I mean, but I wasn't going to turn down the job because it was six <laughs> right. figures. Yeah. And, but I also didn't want to be a manager, you know. Yeah. And uh, but because of my size, they wanted to make me a manager. So I figured, all right, I'll do this and I'll plot my next move. But remember, I'd only been in the business for. What uh, five years at that point? I mean, yeah, four five years. Years. yeah, five years. That's yeah, great. so I mean, I I'm still green as hell, you know, and they yeah. and they put me in, they gave me an office in Titan Tower, made me a producer, um, of an associate producer of Monday Night Raw. How did um, that happen? Though, I mean, did you have Lawler was Lawler was away, experience? or they just wanted Lawler, to give you something else to do? No, Lawler was away, and yeah. uh, they needed somebody to do commentary with Vince. On a superstar show, so they brought me in. Uh -huh. Vince saw that I came prepared with notes and gags and all kinds of stuff, and he liked that. And uh -huh. so he offered me a producer job. And so uh -huh. they gave me an office across from Pat and Bruce on Pat and Bruce on the fourth floor. My God, yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine what. And then and then probably you got to see Howard a lot too. Yeah, Howard is right across the Howard Pat. The offices were Howard. Pat Bruce or Pat Bruce, Pat Howard Bruce. I forget the order. Oh my and then, and I was in the desk that faced all three of those and, uh, the office. And, uh, but I don't, like I said, I only been in business 
full time yeah. four years at that point. Uh huh. Yeah. So I mean, you know, it was a, uh, it was, and I, I was already like, I, I, it's not where I want to be. I don't want to be in the office, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was being groomed to be on a booking committee, and I was like, I don't want to do this. I want to wrestle. So it was it was just a matter of uh, finding the right opportunity. And then when they decided to take me off TV, because Vince, at some point after about a year, Vince was like, you know, you're really not Johnny Polo. Your speech pattern. I go, yeah, I know. You're I like, no shit. <laughs> you're like, no shit. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, you know, but <laughs> but, you know, Shane McMahon should have been Johnny Polo. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, but, we uh, kind of saw that later with the. Yeah, with the Mean Street Pod, which I was actually a real member of, because uh, I used to hang out with Shane and and uh, and um, Joey Abs and uh, Pete Gaz and Rodney, like we all and Shane, we'd all hang out. Like when I lived up in Stanford, when I was a producer, so I, I'm an actual member of the actual Mean Street Posse, one, yeah. as opposed to the uh, the television version. Yeah, well, that's funny. But, uh, yeah, you probably pissed Vince off a few times for taking the chain out. Uh, oh, I, I infuriated. <laughs> dropping him off at the lawn in the morning. <laughs> yeah, no, no, he would end up sleeping in my house, so he'd call home at 4 a.m. and go, "Hey, Dad, I'm sleeping." He goes, "Hey, Vic," because I would call Vince Vic when on commentary, uh, like I didn't know what his name was, you know, because it's a funny gag. Right, and right. Uh, so Shane, Shane thought it was funny, so he would call his dad Vic. So oh, he'd God. go, so he'd go, "Hey, Vic, I'm staying at Johnny Polo's tonight. All right, I'll see you in the morning." And I was like, so, you know, and all the boys thought I was sucking up to Shane, but what I was really doing was, was annihilating my career, getting heat with Vince. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Always- you know, but, but yeah. I'm self-destructive. So I, you know, I'm like, I don't care, yeah. you know? And so, uh, <clears throat> yeah, anyway, so then they took me off of television when, uh, off as the wraparound shows in all American and just strictly producer. And that's when I was like, Nope, I got to quit now. I yeah. want to wrestle. So I, um, I called DDP up and I said, you know, uh, oh, no, I know what it was. I, I was watching. I moved to Philadelphia to start doing indies, to start rebuilding my name and change the character and build this whole new character of Raven. And But I knew I needed to be on TV for it. So I called DDP. You know, so I saw ECW one day on TV and I was like, wow, I was blown away. It was the best show I'd ever seen. So I called Paige and said, you're good friends with Paulie. Call in a favor and get me on the show. So hmm. so he called Paulie and um, long story short, uh, Paulie, uh, basically thought I was coming in to do like a comedy version of, of Johnny, like a grunge comedy ca- character, like, you know, right. like a grunge version of Johnny Polo, but I had, uh, you know, completely other plans. And, and so when he saw what I was creating, so you were already starting to, you'd had already started to create Raven. Yeah. He, he got it. He got it more than I did at first. Oh, like, really? yeah, like bookers always see themselves through a certain, through a character's eyes. Like Vince always saw himself through the Patriot Lex Luger and through the Million Dollar Man's eyes. Like those are the two characters that he always, that's who he viewed himself as. And Booker's always do that. Like um, the, uh, and Paulie saw himself through Dreamer and through me, you Uh know? And so that me and Paulie's working relationship, you know, was phenomenal. I mean, I annoyed the crap out of him because that's who I was. But, you know, business wise, I mean, it was like, you know, he was, he was the uh, Scorsese to my De Niro, you know? Yeah. So he recognized uh, when you got all this stuff just spewing out of you, you got all these ideas and, and you know, and, and he, ju- he just took it in. And was he able to, I, I don't know, uh, put it into produce order? Or what he we could do? It. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but I mean, everybody got- needs a producer. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, if you, look, if you look at Hogan, his best stuff was the original WWE, WWF, or E, whatever letter it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, when he was, um, when he was in there to first, like when he first, not when he first went there when he was a heel, but when he was first there as a babyface in like 84, 85. Yeah. That was his best stuff because he was being produced. Once he became so huge, you know, it became harder. I think it became harder to produce him because he, he knew what he wanted. But unfortunately, everybody needs to be produced, you know? And and for you that was Heyman. I don't know if you ever found anybody else who really could do that, but it's it's fortunate that he came along at that time, or that yeah, you connected. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, yeah, it wouldn't have worked with anybody else, yeah. you know, or any other company. I mean, I was supposed to go to Smoky Mountain for Cornette. And he kept blowing. He kept saying, "I'll bring you in next month," and the next month became the next month. But because I knew I needed a TV show to get my character over, because mm-hmm. it's not something that you just get over doing indies with, you know. Because I I needed episodic storytelling. 
you know, because I'm a storyteller. So mm. I needed I needed the episodicness of, of 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 a TV show. You know how one week builds to the next week, and that builds to the next week, which yeah. I learned in Portland, and that's what I needed. And when and thank God Cornette blew me off because if he wouldn't have blown me off um, and pushed it back and pushed it back, I never would have got it. I never would have caught ECW on TV because I unfortunately had heard had heard all bad things about ECW that it was a garbage wrestling and this and that. And then I finally watched an episode and I was just taken aback. I was like, this is the most ferociously powerful, crazy nut show nut bar of a show you know it, it's yeah. like the uh it's like rocky horror meets pro wrestling yeah and it's kind of it was kind of that uh, i don't know like a real edge to it and and uh i mean i guess uh, we we refer to it like hardcore but it was you know was certainly edgy. different yeah it was yeah, edgy. Exactly. it was what it was was a re you know there was hardcore but it was a revolution in pro wrestling yeah. you know wrestling ne never gave out clean finishes hardly ever at that point in time you know, because it was all squash matches, so guys would never want to do, you know, so the guys um, would only ever win. So when they had to face other guys, nobody wanted to do a job. So it was always a count right. out or, you yeah. know, whatever. Disqualification, um, yeah. We, we Paulie went to all clean finishes, you know. Um, so that was one thing. You know, nobody yeah. sat in, and, and the boys had gotten lazy and wrestled TV like it was a house show where they'd sit in a hold. You know, and milk it. There's nothing wrong with a hold if you're working a hold, but if you're just sitting in a hold, you know, it, it you know, it's tiresome, especially if you're doing it on TV when, you know, when the MTV generation had already started where people were had short attention spans. And so he changed that. He started using like real music as opposed to, you know, you know, made homemade music like, you know, WWF would have a with Jim Johnson making all the music. Not that yeah. he did a great job, but right. it's not the same as hearing Metallica, you know. Yeah. yeah. And, so, did uh, you so see? That, did, do you think that at that time uh, that uh, you know ECW was you know there was the rebels? It was, you know we were uh, doing it our way in a sense yeah, that and, it hadn't been it wasn't being done anywhere else. Was that well, kind not of the feeling? Only that, but but also all the guys there. The I was the only regular who who had like now they brought in Terry Funk and Dory Funk and. Yeah lot of names but i was the only guy who'd been around the business who this wasn't their first territory who was a regular so yeah. as far as they knew i mean you asked the ask bubba ray he'll tell you as far as they knew they thought every company in the business was like ecw you know paulie yeah. would give a state of the union every three weeks at the ecw arena and he would have you wanting like the guys were just drinking the kool-aid and yeah. like and I would, and I was like, I'm not drinking a Kool Aid. But by the end of his speech, I'm like, I'll drink the Kool Aid. <laughs> he was so right. motivational. Cause, yeah. Because Paulie saw himself as Vince Lombardi. That's who. He, that's who he really? thought of himself as. Like, he saw the world through Raven and Dreamer's eyes, but he felt like he was Vince Lombardi, or that's that's who he aspired to be, uh -huh. because he's you know Lombardi's the greatest coach ever. You know, or uh -huh. well, I mean, it's, I, now it's probably arguable, but at that point, he was the greatest coach ever. And this um, was his stage. Yeah, and this was his stage, yeah. you know. And that's why Paulie took himself off TV so he could direct traffic, you know, and and not be involved with it, you know, not be on camera where it's going to detract from the product. Um, so, which, I, which I really think a booker should never work. Yeah. Um, he should never be on camera unless it's just for minor stuff because you can't. It's so hard to run the show as it is to make it top shelf, but then also to have to do the all the stuff that it requires required of a booker is just. It's way too much work to get every to get both jobs done successfully. Um, All right, so tell me about. I mean, this is where Raven really is born and and uh, you know starts to grow up. I guess the way to put it. But give me the blueprints on because you didn't know. You probably had a you know the vision in your mind, but until you step into the ring and until you are in front of uh, a, a few thousand people, you really don't know what that reaction is. So, no, the blueprint. Give knew. me the blueprint of Raven going into it before you. What are you thinking? Because you really tapped into a generation at the time. Yeah, I mean, I caught the cultural zeitgeist, but but yeah. I knew that. I mean, I knew Did you? I knew that I tapped into something because misfits always there's always misfits, you know, whether they're whether they were the beatniks in the fifties or the you know the whatever in the you know the the, uh, the outcasts, the outsiders, the outcasts, the, yeah, yeah. 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 You know, there's there's always that, and there's always, and and even if 
I mean, they're only 20% of the crowd, but, but the fact is everybody knows what they are and everybody yeah. hates them because they're different. Everybody hates them because they, uh, they're considered whiners and complainers and because they don't want to fit in. And yeah. so people don't like that. Yeah. And, and I knew that I knew, I knew my psychology was stronger. You know, it's like they say, I know my Kung Fu is stronger than your Kung Fu. Yeah. <laughs> but I knew my psychology was stronger than anybody's because yeah. I learned from the grappler in Portland. Um, who, uh, who was so talented, the, the grappler was Linden, that when he was in his first territory, was his first major territory was for Watts, and he was 5'10", 240, and he worked on top, and he was a huge draw for Watts, and for Watts to put a 5'10 guy on top, mm -hmm. um, that green, and he had to have something special. Yeah. And so the grappler's psychology was beyond question, and I picked his brain for two straight years. And um, and I knew my psychology was strong, and I, plus the fact that everybody was tweeners made it e my job even easier because I knew that I would get heat. Um, like I would do little things too. Like when I like Stevie was my um, Stevie was a great heat getter, great heat getter. Yeah. Um, but then I would abuse him and get him sympathy, and like I'd do little things like instead of sl right. like slap him, I'd give him the backhand. Because a backhand's more dismissive. A slap yeah. is mean. A backhand is, is cruel. Yeah. So, and so it's little things like that that all add up to make the 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 part the parts add up to be greater than the whole. Okay, and, but uh, but but but, but talking and this is this is fascinating because when you you talk about the psychology of wrestling and and, and it's kind of uh, I don't know two dimensional in a way because. You know, you have the heel, and he does something nasty to his opponent, to the baby, and it's heat, and he, and it's pretty simple. But were you thinking all this time, like, I mean, you started getting into the layers of this, where you know you're messing with them emotionally, and you're when were you starting to think about and and how you th thought that would get over, how that would be. I, the but see, the, but that's always great wrestling to me was always yeah. was always the psychological pain. Because I well I knew it be, I knew it for numerous reasons, but I also I mean I could I could I could verbalize it too, but I also that's how the best wrestling always was, you know, uh -huh. it's psychologically driven. Because yeah. here's the thing, I can steal your girlfriend, right? Yeah. And that that no I mean I, I'm sorry, your girlfriend cheats on you. Uh, hang on, how's how's my theory go? The, <laughs> I had one that I used all the time that yeah. I was just trying to re-remember it. Yeah. Um, Oh, if you get beat up physically, it hurts, but it goes away. If somebody yeah. steals your girlfriend, that doesn't go away for a long time. Yeah. So there's a difference between physical pain, which is when heels normally would just beat a guy up. Yeah. And so they, they the fans would be mad because yeah, you're you know, a bad guy for beating him up because right. he got beat up. The physical pain. Yeah. But the emotional pain you take the guy's girlfriend. Whoa, that's gonna that's that's definitely gonna be pain. That's gonna hurt a much longer time. Right. So I knew that. Um, and the best wrestling, I'm trying to think of a good example now. Oh, greatest example of that is the people wanted to turn to Rock Babyface um, when he was the Rock, when he was the million dollar champion or whatever. Mm -hmm. And the, they built it and built it. And just as the Rock was about to turn Babyface, he stayed heel. And the place went bananas and hated him. And it was such a great psychological maneuver. But and he didn't even have to beat anybody up. Or another great example was. Um, the uh, Flair, I think Dusty was, uh, wait, was it? Oh, Flair was fighting the Russians or something in a cage. One of the Russians, he's getting, then they they triple team him. Dusty comes in to make the save and Flair just walks out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't throw one punch. And yeah. the Russians did all the physical work of all the ass kicking, but the heat's on Flair, not on the Russians. I mean, there's heat on the Russians, but the real heat's on Flair because he did something despicable. He deserted somebody who not only came out to help him when he was getting his ass kicked, but then he turned around and deserted him. I mean, how despicable is that? Yeah. And that's the best wrestling to me. That's the stuff that always motivated me. And that's the stuff I wanted to do. And the best way to do it is to become a three-dimensional character so that the audience knows that how you'll behave in any situation. And but also you surprise them all the time though, with so, like just as they think of how uh, you can be so despicable and so cruel to somebody and then you take it to another level. Right. Uh, then, then, then they start to like you because 
because you know it's it's there's something likable about a guy who's that devious. So you start <laughs> to like him, and then he then he uh, takes this, then he takes your his opponent's kid away from him and has his kid say, "Daddy, you're a, I hate you. You're a drunk. Right. I love Raven." You know, and then boom, everybody knows about you know like everybody knows somebody. You drove him to drink, right? No, I mean, he already drank, but <laughs> yeah, but. But but here's the thing, everybody everybody even though that doesn't affect everybody, everybody knows somebody whose wife or husband has used a child in the divorce as a weapon. Yeah. It's the most it's the cruelest thing you can do to a kid is use him as a weapon. And yeah. that's what we did. We used the kid as a weapon and him and his wife's because his wife was my valet, his estranged wife. Mm-hmm. You know, so what what meaner thing can you do? And even though most people hadn't experienced it. They all know somebody who has or can imagine the pain of their own kid being used as a weapon because it's it's the worst thing you can do to a kid, yeah. you know. And so that's that's the that's the games I love playing, you know. Because I would never do it in real life, but that's what I that's what I loved about wrestling because, you know, it was it was acting, but it was acting crossed with rock starism. Yeah, and you could get away with it. I mean, you uh, you know right. that that. But were there, like, when you got into this character, and it was really over, uh, did you feel like there was just no limits? Like, oh, I'm just going to try this, or I'm going to see how this, because you got that confident with, with uh, you know, what you were doing with the character? I never thought there were limits anyway. I mean, I, I don't believe in limits, you but know? You, you found one, though. I mean, with the, the cross and the, nah, uh, oh, even to you, I'm... even. Okay, first of all. There was no okay. Here, here's and here's what I'll say about that because I was thinking of using that as an example. Yeah. All right. We, we I crucified the Sandman because I took three. I took a couple weeks off to go to rehab because I was having an emotional breakdown, and uh, so I went to rehab to to dry up. And uh, when I came back, I wanted to do something that had impact. So I thought, why don't I crucify the Sandman? Because <laughs> if I think I'm a martyr for society's dysfunction, I'm going to make him feel my pain. You know. Yeah. yeah. And so we did that, but then. The audience reacted the exact right way. It was Japan heat. It was quiet heat. It was I was in the I was in the middle of the ring. I know what the audience responded. Shocked. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was wow. <laughs> but here's the thing: the um, even if we all went over the line, you never apologize because we're the extreme promotion. You right. just bite the bullet and you went okay. If we went over, if we would have went over the line, I would have said, well, we went over the line, but oh well. You know, it happens. It's going to happen when you play up near the line. But yeah. unfortunately, because Kurt Angle was there and he, they were trying to hire him, trying to get him to come into wrestling, and he was just a guest, you know, because in his mind, we're just m- mocking the cross. But, you know, but I just use it as religious iconography to ma- as a metaphor, you know, just like people doing art all the time. And the audience got it because that's who our audience was. They were smart. But, you know, but Kurt, he was he was a guest. Taz joined in, and then of course I'm Jewish. Paulie's Jewish. Todd Gordon's Jewish. Now right. you're thinking, oh, because these oh. guys are Jewish, and I'm like, right. look, if I would have put him on a Jewish star, he would have just rolled away. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, but but if yeah, I, would have I know what you're Jewish saying. Star, nobody would have cared. Yeah. They would have been like, why is he on a Jewish star? But on a cross, he's being crucified for for my sins. You know, yeah. that makes sense. A Jewish star makes zero sense. Yeah. You know, and so. Yeah, and the only reason Paulie had me go out and apologize is because of Kurt. Otherwise, he never would have done it. And really? I think he was feeling a little pressure because me, him, and Todd are Jewish and, and how it would look, you know. But he knew that, but he knew I was going to give the, the fakest, most insincere, sincere apology ever. Which but I were, did. There, were there organizations, were there religious organizations, you know, blasphemy and, you know, contacting no. you? Or, no, we oh, we Heyman probably would have loved no, that. We weren't right up in the totem pole. Yeah. Yeah. We, we were, we were, you know, it's like WWE as high as they are in the totem pole. They yeah. still like if they if they did have if they did one fifth of the thing. No, I mean five. Uh, let me rephrase that. The NFL can do one fifth or one tenth of what WWF does, like you know, wrong, and they'll get bludgeoned for it. But WWF doesn't because we're not looked at. We're looked at. Wrestling is looked at as the stepchild. It always has been and always will be. Mm-hmm. Except well, and it's also kind of, they know it's, it's, it's removed from reality to a sense, you right. know what I'm saying? Like the NFL can't, these guys do these things and, uh, you know, and they, they, they're, they're accountable for it. 
But in yeah. cases like that, because you are, you do get a, a level of, you know, that it's not, that it's not reality. And so they can, they well, get but away. It's also, it's also cause they're more mainstream now as mainstream as wrestling is, it's still not considered mainstream, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, you mentioned, you mentioned the issues with, with, uh, you know, substances and, and drinking and, and, uh, how bad was it during that period of time where you said you actually had to step away? Uh, uh well, that was more of an emotional breakdown. I had, um, uh, I just, uh, it was a, that's a long story that I don't, I don't think we have time. We've already been going like an hour, but I don't think <laughs> we have time for that. But, um, cause I, I, even though we started late and which was my fault, I, I still, I got to get running pretty soon. Yeah. Um, work. But we can always do it again, too, if you want. Um, oh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm really telling you, we could talk forever. I, I mean, there's a lot of things that uh, I'd love to talk to you about. Uh, one thing I did want to uh, talk to you, though, uh, that during that period of time, Scott, uh, you really tapped in. You really did ch- tap into a generation. There was a lot going on with young people then. And I, I wonder now, when you see uh, our culture these days and, like, how many uh, young people are are suffering with mental illness that uh, – is, is is there anything that like you, what, what is your uh, feeling today of what we need to do? And I, I don't mean to get too deep on you here, but no, no, it's fine. You know, uh, what it's like to, to live in that world, uh, whether it was, you know, what you were doing, creating or whatever, but you know, it's, it's, it's kind of frightening to see today. And I don't think anyone is really addressing it. I think honestly, the single biggest scourge of the world is bad parenting. There's nothing worse. Bad parenting is the single worst thing because all it does is produce more bad people. Um, I think everybody should see a psychiatrist. I think psychologists should be mandatory for everyone. Um, Especially, you know, around 10, 12 years old. I think everybody should see one. You know, I'm not saying see one all the time and for years at a time, but I think they should be mandatory at some point in your life because nobody had people don't. People just like when they have all the symptoms, you know, instead of dealing with them, you know, like wrestling, wrestling's full of tough guys, you know, but yeah. we're creative because we're creative people or you wouldn't be in this particular sport. But tough right. guys don't go to don't go to psychologists. And so many people could benefit from that. I mean, it saved it saved me. I mean, it, I'm content now as a human being. I never could have dreamed of being content until, you know, I went to a psychologist's couch. Um I got a buddy of mine who never would have went to a psychologist and he's not a tough guy at all, but he never would have went. Cause that's for other people until yeah. I talked him into it. And then, and now, and cause a friend of his had died, his best friend had died and he didn't know how to deal with it. And I'm like, go see this, this psychologist. And he did. And he's, he's grown so much as a person. And it's, it's amazing what you can learn on a couch, you know, about yourself. And, and the best part is, is, or, or the worst part is they make you do all the work anyway. Yeah. You know, it's like. Well, and, and it sounded like you struggled with it for, for years and years. Was there a breakthrough or what is it that finally made yeah, you? Um, I, I, well, okay. One example is that uh, I always held myself to a higher standard. So I thought my career was a failure because I never became the world champion of WWE. You know, of course, the odds against that were astronomical. The yeah. fact that I yeah, burnt my yeah. bridge up there numerous times was making sure it's not going to happen. Third, I may not have been qualified to be the world champion. I mean, I think I, I was, but but let's just say, I, you know, some people don't think I was, you know, I, so let's say I wasn't. Um, no, but looking at it as a whole, Scott, I mean, when you just look at what you were able to do, when you think about the thousands and thousands and thousands of guys that have probably had the body, had the, could do the moves in the ring, but never got a, never got a sniff. They've been doing, they, you know, did Indies may still be. So do you ever, were you ever able to look back and go, yeah, hell. Yeah. But that's what, that's what I was saying. That's why I went to a psychologist and eventually she pointed out that she goes, the only one holding you to a higher standard is you. You don't have to hold yourself to that standard. Your career was incredibly successful. I go, I go, yeah, but, and she goes, let me ask you this. If somebody else had your career, what would you tell them? Oh, they they had an incredibly successful career. (laughs) Then why can't you let yourself have that? Mm-hmm. And that's what I dealt with, and that's what we went through over and over until I finally accepted the fact that I had a hell of a goddamn career, yeah. you know. I yeah. especially considering I'm a terrible athlete, mid card athlete at best, and I'm, I'm not. I'm six foot two thirty two, well two forty two thirty five now. But I was yeah. like in my heyday, I was two thirty two thirty five. Yeah. But 
you know, I was never a big guy. I was not a good athlete, but I always knew my psychology was stronger than theirs. Yeah. And, and so, but I eventually I accepted that, which was due to being, seeing a psychologist. I mean, yeah. and so now it also enabled me to deal with all my other baggage so that now I can be content. You know, I used to have to go out seven nights a week. I, I was going out seven nights a week from the time I was 15 till I was 45, wow. you know, cause I always had to be out, had to be where the action is. Now I don't want to go anywhere. I just want to stay home and watch TV with my dog, yeah. you know, but, yeah. but I couldn't even imagine that. I couldn't imagine not going out. I'd be missing out. You know, it's what's it? Um, uh, FOMO. I guess that's a big thing now. FOMO, fear yeah. of missing out. Yeah. That was me. I was scared yeah. of missing out. I didn't want to miss a thing. I didn't want to miss any excitement. Now I don't even, I've already done it. I got the yeah. t-shirt. I threw up on the t-shirt. I bought another t-shirt. I threw up on that t-shirt. <laughs> I bought another t-shirt. Wiped my ass with it. Did another t-shirt. Yeah. Face planted. Ripped the shirt to shreds. Finally decided T-shirts weren't for me. <laughs> oh. Well, I'll tell you, um, it sounds like your your brain is as 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 uh, active as ever. But it's it sounds like you've you've found some peace, and that that's great. Uh, which included, well, yeah, Raven really effect. Well. You've got Raven. the Raven effect, and uh, have you ever thought maybe you should do a podcast for? You could probably help a lot of kids. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but man, it's something they need yeah, a voice I, out there to help them because. Uh, that's you know. actually, I never really thought about that, but, uh, yeah, that would be something that would be helpful. Um, yeah, no, I should think about that. That's, that's a really good idea. Oh, I'm but, telling you, I, I, because they, first of all, they need somebody they can identify with. You've got, uh, you know, the history of, uh, you know, that you were able to reach a lot of these people and they need a voice and they need to find out, you know, which I really love that a lot of these celebrities who have struggled with depression and anxiety are coming out and saying, yeah, you know, that's me. I still deal with it every day. And I think we need more and more people to do that. And, uh, you'd be awesome. I, I, I oh man, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I I I know you got to go, Scott. Huh? I do want to say that on my podcast, uh, you would think it'd be a wrestling podcast and it's wrestling adjacent, but it's more, um, nonsensical or ridiculous. It's, uh, it's basically anything we can do to get a laugh. Um, (laughs) Me and my co-host, who's really, really funny, and uh, well, the two of you between when you the uh, the poems and stuff you do, I mean, it's it's pretty funny, folks. You got to check it out. <laughs> Thank you. It's the Raven it's Effect the, podcast on Westwood One on the Jericho yeah. Network. That's right. That's the Raven Effect. You can uh, on all your uh, free podcast platforms out there, folks. Check it out. Scott, thank you so much. And really, this conversation is not completed. I hope that uh, we can get you back on because. Uh, uh, we still have lots to talk about, but uh, I'd love to, but, Sean. Love to. Uh, it's great talk. I'm glad we finally really got to meet, though, other than the first yeah. time we sort of met. Thanks so much for taking the time, and uh, talk to you soon. Take care. All right, stay in touch.